Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Hi, my name is Hannah Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Federal Government Relations and Health Policy for the National Psoriasis Foundation. I'm joined today by my National Psoriasis Foundation colleague, Patrick Stone, who is the Vice President of Government Relations and Advocacy overseeing both NPF's federal and state-level advocacy work. Today, we are here to discuss the 2020 election outcomes from the presidential race to state houses and assemblies. We will also be highlighting what the election results mean for NPF's advocacy work over the next few years. Patrick, thanks for being on Soundbites with me. I know this year, the 2020 election was more of a marathon than one race, but we've made it through. Hannah, thanks for having me on Soundbites. I'm excited to be back on. Yeah, it was a really, really long sprint, like a marathon where you're just sprinting nonstop. So we have come to the conclusion of the election for at least a few weeks. And then, of course, we have the January 5th runoff in Georgia, and we'll get into that. But first, I'll talk about the presidential election and what it means for NPF. So first and foremost, I think as we start talking about politics, it's important to remind our listeners that the National Psoriasis Foundation is a 501c3. Well, what does that mean? It means that legally, we are a nonpartisan organization. We don't make political donations as an organization. We don't have a PAC. We don't only support Republicans or Democrats. We don't only employ Republicans or Democrats. And in fact, quite the opposite. We make a very good faith effort to be bipartisan in an outwardly facing way. We have staff that are far left liberals and far right conservatives, and some people that kind of zigzag in between. And it's important to acknowledge that. What comes with that is a very science and facts first approach to our work. So what does that mean about what we're gonna talk about when it comes to politics? Well, it means that we're gonna say, and I'll start off by saying it, Joe Biden is the president-elect and will be the 46th president of the United States, and Senator Harris will be the vice president, and the first woman of color to hold that office. So while you may see a lot of noise in, in the news media, here at NPF, we view this as, how are we going to now move forward? So the election results have been certified in all the states, and right around the time that the Electoral College meets, this podcast will be coming out and they will finish the certification process of the election. So that means that on January 20th, the Biden administration will occupy the White House. They will have already been working across agencies to prepare for work on day one. There's this whole scenery in DC that really occurs where people literally walk into buildings on that day, on January 20th, and start working. So Hannah, what types of healthcare policies can we expect from the incoming Biden administration? So President-elect Biden made healthcare a major focus of the campaign and highlighted a lot of things that he would like to do, such as creating a public option in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, making some other changes to the ACA, 
and also highlighted things around drug pricing as well. We've already seen a large push from the Trump administration to finalize some of their pending regulations that they have going forward right now and try to move some of those proposed rules through the rulemaking process before the new administration takes over. After January 20th, the incoming Biden administration could put a hold on any pending regulations, but could only undo or reverse any finalized regulations by going through the prolonged rulemaking process. So what that means is there's a lot of rules such as the drug pricing rules that have been finalized here at the last of the Trump administration. Once the Biden administration and staff finish the transition and take over these agencies, they will be able to decide if they can put a hold on some of those things moving forward, or they can start issuing their own regulations that would undo some of the ones that have been finalized by the Trump administration. Early reports from what we've been seeing indicate a Biden administration may heavily rely not just on the regulatory process, but could potentially use executive orders as well. We've seen a lot of executive orders used by President Trump to address some of his healthcare and drug pricing priorities over the last few years. So it will be interesting to see if President-elect Biden would also use executive orders or try to negotiate for legislation instead. The former vice president is a creature of the Senate. He served there for many, many years before he moved into the White House as vice president. And so it will be interesting to see if he uses some of that procedural knowledge and negotiation skills that he fostered there to try to work with Congress on deals around healthcare and some of his other priorities versus using some executive orders to move those things forward, like we've seen with President Obama and President Trump. So, Hannah, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, if you're paying attention to what's going on around some of the stimulus talks, there is some hope of bipartisan nature of the Senate coming back. Same thing in the House, that because we have divided government and because the margins are so close that there will be this absolute need for bipartisan action by the two controlling parties. And I think that foreshadows what I think we're going to talk about a little bit next here, which is how the congressional races turned out. Tell us about that. Absolutely. And that does piggyback off what we were just talking about with the Biden administration. The makeup of Congress is really important to what types of legislation we are going to see move forward and what, especially around healthcare, will move forward. Across the country during this election, congressional races did not experience the, quote, blue wave that many pollsters and pundits had predicted. This happened in part because of record turnout by both parties. We saw a lot of enthusiasm from both sides to participate in this election. A lot of folks were participating for the first time, which is always great. It's one of the elections that had the largest turnout in history. This means, though, that Democrats did lose a few seats in the House. They have a narrower dim majority. They have 222 Democrats and 209 Republicans. The majority needs 218 for a majority in the House, which the Democrats have. And Nancy Pelosi will continue to be Speaker of the House, with Kevin McCarthy remaining the minority leader there as well for the Republicans. In the Senate, Republicans lost two seats. They lost in Arizona, where Mark Kelly defended Senator Martha McSally, and in Colorado, where former Governor John Hickenlooper defeated Senator Cory Gardner. 
Democrats also lost one seat themselves in Alabama with Doug Jones losing to Tommy Tuberville. And that makes the current Senate makeup split at 48 Democrats and 50 Republicans. The control for the Senate really right now is hinging on the January 5th runoff election in Georgia. You have Senator David Perdue defending his seat against John Ossoff and Senator Kelly Loeffler defending her seat against Reverend Raphael Warnock. They all went to runoffs. Neither candidate in the Purdue or Ossoff race were able to get over 50%. Loeffler and Warnock were also on the ticket with Representative Doug Collins from Georgia, so the votes were split three ways there. So now you have the two of them with the most votes moving on to this January 5th runoff. If Democrats do win the two Georgia Senate seats, it would create a situation where it is a 50-50 Senate, so evenly split between the two parties with a Vice President Kamala Harris, she would serve as the tie-breaking vote there in the Senate for 51 votes. And so conversely, if Republicans retain both of those Georgia seats, the Senate will remain in Republican control with 52 seats and 48 Democratic seats. I will say that even if Democrats win the two seats in Georgia and make it that 50-50 scenario with a tie-breaking vote, such small margins for both parties can really have a big effect on what type of legislation they can pass. The Senate is a little bit different than the House where to move something forward onto the floor to get to a final vote, 60 senators have to agree to what they call quorum. And obviously if you have a 50-50 scenario, either side would have to gain 10 senators from the opposite party to get that quorum vote, to get to 60 and move things forward. And sometimes that can make it, if it's a more progressive bill, that could make it hard to get 10 Republican senators to sign on. And the opposite is true. If it was a very conservative bill, it might be harder to get 10 Democrats to sign on to move it forward in that process. So I think that means that we won't be able to see a Biden administration pass some of their more progressive health care policies, such as a public option and maybe some other improvements to the Affordable Care Act. I think those would have to be smaller and more tailored in those situations. And on top of that, with the Affordable Care Act, there is still a pending decision in the California versus Texas case in front of the Supreme Court right now. And that case handles whether the individual mandate is unconstitutional in the Affordable Care Act and whether that can be separated out of the bill and tossed out on its own, or should the entire bill be thrown out? I think depending on what that decision is when the court finally rules, Congress could potentially have to pass healthcare legislation that would address parts of the bill or the entire bill itself if the court should overturn the ACA in its entirety. So there's a lot of moving pieces that are still happening. As we move forward, we'll be able to determine more what some of these ACA improvement bills will look like. So Hannah, I think you make some interesting points. And whether or not the Biden administration will lean heavily on the executive order or not, still in Congress, really every vote, every member is even more important, despite whatever the outcome of Georgia is, regardless. And it's interesting because you've heard mentions in the media about earmarks coming back. And I think that's a foreshadowing of where we may be heading in individual members exercising the power of their office. Hannah, can you talk a little bit about specifically 
that Alabama race that you mentioned and how that directly impacts some of NPS work. So as many folks listening to the podcast may know, MPF has really been advocating and trying to pass a bill, what is called the Safe Step Act, that addresses step therapy on the federal level and implements some patient protections for that process to maintain folks on some of their medications and not have them forced off due to an insurance utilization management tool. And Senator Doug Jones was our original Democratic Senate sponsor of that bill last year when it was introduced, and he lost his race in Alabama. And we have been working directly with his office in kind of gaining their idea of who would be another Democratic senator that would be interested in picking up that torch and signing on to the bill as the Democratic lead sponsor. We are looking at having to reintroduce that bill both in the Senate and the House when the new Congress is sworn in in January. And so that work is important to start now. So we are ready when that time rolls around in January. Patrick, I know that you were involved more on this in the state legislators and work directly with our state team to advance our priorities there. Can you give folks an idea of what some important state elections happened this year or what those results mean for NPF and what issues we're going to be working on at the state level moving forward? Yeah, I'm excited to, Hannah. And for our listeners and for those that are advocates at NPF, you know, I love my state facts. I come from a state background. So I'll, I'll throw some state election facts out there. So similar to what we're talking about the fe- at the federal level, there was not this blue wave that was anticipated by many at the state level. And the goal of Democrats at the state level was to flip legislative chambers. On average, in an election during a presidential year, about 12 legislative chambers flipped. This year, only two flipped, and it was in the same state, New Hampshire, both the Senate and the House, flipped to Republicans. Now, that's not the biggest deal. As I like to say to people, New Hampshire chambers can flip with a a slight breeze. But what it is indicative of is there there was not this massive turnout in support of Democrats at the local level. Quick fact for you, the only state where Democrats really had gains beyond what they were expected, which is Georgia in the presidential election, is the only state that the Democratic Party chose to door knock in during the, the pandemic. So Republicans door knocked across the country in all states. Democrats chose only in Georgia and very last minute in certain aspects of the Latino community in Florida to door knock. And a lot of people are saying, that's why you didn't see the chamber slip and many of these 5,876 state legislative races go towards Democrats. That's how many legislators were up. 5,876 state legislators were up for reelection in the states. So the overall result is that out of the 98 partisan chambers in the country. 61 are Republican and 37 are Democrat. Nebraska is a unicameral, which means there's only one legislative body and it's technically not political, but it's Republican. And 29 states are all Republican and 18 states are all D Democrat. And what that means is since for the first time since 1914, there is still only one state in the union that is split where the One chamber is controlled by Democrats and the other by Republicans, and that's Minnesota. So 
the notion of divided government is not pervasive in the states. So what impact does that have on our work, these elections at the state level? Well, the election really doesn't have much of an impact. To Hannah's point, we didn't lose any major bill sponsors. We actually had some bill sponsors in state like Arizona move into positions of leadership. So some positive things there for us. What does impact us though at the state level is the pandemic and a great deal. A lot of legislatures will be in a virtual format. They're limiting the amount of bills that can be introduced. You can't go inside the state capitol. These legislative sessions start in the winter and will extend into the early and late spring, sometimes into the summer. So we're still going to be in this very COVID-esque time where we can't go and advocate in person. And so that makes it difficult for you, the advocate, but we're gonna provide a lot of opportunities. I know we're all getting tired of virtual events. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to engage with your state legislators and your elected officials at the federal level as well. And we're gonna provide those opportunities. But COVID is gonna have a huge impact on, again, what the states are addressing. Medicaid budgets are gonna be a big deal. The scope of subject matter that's addressed will be a lot more narrow. A lot of legislatures are saying, we don't wanna handle anything that's not COVID related. So it's on us to make sure that we're advocating on behalf of our patients and letting them know how the pandemic has impacted our community and why the legislation that we are advocating for is pertinent and needs to move forward. So a lot of the issues that we work on at the state level will remain the same. Step therapy reform will continue to be a priority for the NPS, and we will continue to take a lead on that issue in a number of states, including Nebraska and Arizona. Copay accumulators, which we've talked about before and actually will dedicate an entire podcast to in the near future, are going to continue to be an issue that is a big deal to patients, particularly during COVID and as we come out of this pandemic. We're leading on that issue in Maryland. We're excited about that. Only several states have passed a bill around copay accumulators, and the amount of copay accumulators that are actually being implemented keeps on growing exponentially. Additionally, out-of-pocket costs, telehealth, will continue to be issues we focus on at the state level. So that's what's happening at the, and will happen at the state level. Thank you for that. And I think some of that feeling about COVID still taking a priority also is reflected at the federal level right now. I know that the Senate and the House are still trying to come to an agreement about what a next relief package will look like for COVID-19 and what size that will be. And there's some discrepancies there. And there's also some talk in this lame duck period about surprise medical billing being addressed. That's a bipartisan issue that's been talked about a lot and has gotten some traction this year. We've been hearing positive things about it potentially moving forward before the new Congress is sworn in. So we will keep monitoring that as well. I think telehealth will also be an area that we will continue to advocate for and see some movement on. And of course, the Safe Step Act and step therapy at the federal level will continue to be at the top of our list as well. So thank you, Patrick, for joining me today to talk about the election results. It was really fun to talk about this with you on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And to all our listeners, we're really looking forward to working with you in the upcoming legislative sessions and in the new Congress. As the new administration begins the transition and legislative chambers in D.C. and across the country swear in their new members, the NPF will continue our work to ensure access to affordable health care for those living with psoriatic disease. Check out the episode notes for ways to get in touch with us. 
and sign up for our voter voice alerts to keep in the loop of what we're doing here at NPF at our website, psoriasis.org advocacy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.